You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. seven times in the Jordan River to get rid of his leprosy. If we touched the bones of Elisha, we would be healed. Peter's shadow healed people. Paul's sweatband or handkerchief healed people. Nothing is impossible for God. He does use unusual circumstances someday. But listen to what David Guzik says about this. Quote, God can and does use things unexpected. But something isn't necessarily from God simply because it's unexpected or unusual. Some people get thrown off by all the supernatural and, quote, weird things that are in the Bible. While God often works in strange and unusual ways, Pastor Dave reminds us that just because something is weird doesn't mean that it comes from God. You're called to know Scripture and discern what is from God and what isn't. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of John, chapter 5, as he begins his message, Do You Want to Be Made Well? Gospel of John, we're going to be in chapter 5, John chapter 5. We're going to be reading through the first nine verses, John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the water, moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after that stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. So as we come now to chapter 5, John is once again giving us a little scene a little snippet of Jesus' ministry here on earth. It's as if John had a small camera in his pocket, and everywhere he went with Jesus, he took little pictures. And then he shows us these little pictures time and time again. Jesus did much more than John could ever show us. It's just like you saw in our VBS pictures. A lot more that happened during that time. But we took some pictures that would highlight our VBS and show to you so you got an idea of what was happening. That's what John's doing in his gospel. He does this for one main reason. So you might believe in Jesus Christ. That you might believe that he is the son of God. And then by believing in his name, you would have eternal life. That's what John wrote his gospel about. So today, as we begin chapter 5, 
we come to just another little insight, another little snippet of the ministry of Jesus. So let me set up the first five verses that we read. Let me set the scene, if you will. There's a feast going on in Jerusalem. Jesus was attending. Now, we're not told what feast it was. There were only three feasts that each man was supposed to attend in Jerusalem. Three feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Purim. Most scholars agree that this was the Feast of Passover. However, it doesn't say so. And by looking at it as a piece of Passover, they can see the life of Jesus' ministry for about three and a half years. There are several Passovers that John clearly says is Passover, but we don't know that here. But in Jerusalem, which is where they are, there is this pool of water. The pool's name is Bethesda. Now, it's interesting that it's near the Sheep Gate, and we're studying this at this time. I thought about the Sheep Gate, and you might not know this, but the Sheep Gate is so named because when they were herding the animals in for the sacrifice, they took them to the Sheep Gate, and they went into the temple through that gate for the sacrifice. So what would be that significance for us? Well, you remember when we studied John 1, in 29 and 30, when the Baptist was standing there, and here comes Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He points to Jesus, and he said, This is he. This is the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. The sheep gate then speaks to us of this experience in the Christian life, the realization in our hearts that Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God, and he does take away our sins. The sheep gate, speaks to us of the cross. The sheep gate speaks to us of the sacrifice that was made for our sin. Now let me be clear about something. Jesus' death on the cross is the starting point of our salvation. But it's also the ending point of our salvation. Because Jesus hung on that cross and his words were, it is finished. So it's the starting point and it's the end. Everything begins and ends with Jesus' sacrifice. And another important thing that I found, as in John 10, when we get there someday, Jesus says that he's the door for the sheep. Jesus declares, I'm the door for the sheep. He declares that if anybody enters through me, he will be saved. And I got to thinking, the sheep were being brought into the temple. What's in the temple? Presence of God. The temple was where the presence of God was, according to the Jews. He sat between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, remember? Well, Jesus is declaring he's the sheep gate. We, as his sheep, go through the gate to get to God. I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So we see a clear picture here of Jesus. For us to come into God's presence, we must enter through the sheep gate. We must enter through Jesus Christ. So I thought that was interesting little aside here as we looked at this passage. So there's this pool, and it's surrounded by five porches. Another fascinating fact is during an excavation in Jerusalem, they found this pool, and it had five porches around it, just like they said. They unearthed it, and it's there. But laying around the pool is this great multitude of people. Some of them were sick. Some of them were paralyzed. Some of them were lame and couldn't walk. Now the tradition says that when the angel came down and moved the water, in the old King James it says, troubled the water, when an angel came down and moved the water, the first person that got into the water was healed of their infirmity. 
We don't know if this facts are fiction, but they believe. So maybe by faith, there was a healing process. We don't know. What we do know is that nothing's impossible for God. We do know that throughout the entire scriptures, you can read of many instances where unusual circumstances were used to heal people. Naaman had a dip seven times in the Jordan River to get rid of his leprosy. If we touched the bones of Elisha, we would be healed. Peter's shadow healed people. Paul's sweatband or handkerchief healed people. Nothing is impossible for God. He does use unusual circumstances someday. But listen to what David Guzik says about this. Quote, God can and does use things unexpected. But something isn't necessarily from God simply because it's unexpected or unusual. Interesting. So people have been lying around here for a long, long time. One man had been there for 38 years. Now, in some of the commentaries, they got into a deep discussion about this representing Israel and the time in the wilderness and all that kind of stuff. But I wasn't going there. I saw this in a different view. Jesus saw him there that day. Jesus came. Picture this now, if you will. You have this pool. You have all these throngs of people. Throngs of people sitting there, laying there. What is Jesus thinking as he's walking through the crowd? What's Jesus thinking about as he goes through the crowd and, and an affected hand reaches up and grabs his ankle? What does he do when a blind child comes and stumbles before him? Does he reach down and catch the child? Well, what's he thinking about? What, what goes on when all these arms are reaching out to him for help? How does Jesus respond? Well, how does God respond to hurting people? How does God respond to hurting people? First of all, I think he wants us to know that we're not alone. We can face our fears through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can be overcomers if we would place our faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, in John's epistle, in 1 Epistle chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We become overcomers because we're born of God. And when we're born of God, we believe in Jesus Christ. That makes us born of God. We become overcomers. This picture is powerful. This picture is incredible, and it's very troubling. Very troubling picture, row after row after row after row of hurting people. Row after row after row of moaning and groaning because of their afflictions. And then I got to thinking, is it much different than today? Is it much different than today? Our world is full of pain. Our world is full of hurt. Our world is full of trouble and sorrow. We're surrounded on every side by row after row after row of wounded, sick, and hurting people. It's everywhere, even in this room. Look around at the people you attend church with every single week. The standard response is, how you doing? Fine. That's the standard response. Fine. Are you? Is that what you're saying? So people won't think anything less of you? Are you wearing some sort of a mask? Maybe you see a row after row after row after row of people who are dressed to success and impress you. But Jesus sees row after row after row after row of hurting people. Hurting people, yes, even in this room. People here today because they need comfort. People need to hear today because they need peace. People hear today because they actually need a healing. There are lonely people here today who need belonging. They need to belong to something. There's people in captivity today who are seeking freedom. There's prodigals here in need of forgiveness. 
There's desperate people here in need of hope today. There are those of us who what we might call have major problems. I'm talking about major, major problems. Some sort of incurable disease. Some sort of a job problem. Some sort of money financial problem. But there are many of us with lesser hurts. They don't seem too small to us. An unresponsive spouse, a boring job, a poor grade, a friend, a parent who is left unresponsive. Stories go on and on. The lonely, the dying, the discouraged, the exhausted, the fearful, they're all here. They've come to what we like to call the hospital. We are a hospital. A gentleman wrote an article once, and he titled the article about churchgoers, would every person who does not hurt in some way please stand up? Interesting. So who's to blame? Or what's to blame? Where can we place blame for such a hurting world, for such a devastating thing that's going on in our lifetime? One word, sin. Its effects are devastating. But what's interesting is that the prophet Isaiah prophesies about this a long time ago when he prophesies about the Messiah coming to the nation Israel. In Isaiah 35, in verses 3 through 6, this is what he writes. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like the deer and the tongues of the dumb shall sing. For water shall birth forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah indicates that there's some of you among God's people who have weak hands and feeble knees. What's the cause? The cause is sin in our life. The cause is we stop moving forward to Jesus Christ. We've become stagnant. Just like a pool of water that doesn't move. After time, it becomes stagnant. We've become stagnant in our walk because we've stopped action. We've stopped. Something is keeping us down. If we're not moving forward in our walk with Jesus Christ, we possibly have come to the stop. And heaven forbid that we start to go backwards. If we're no longer following hard after Jesus Christ, we might be left with weak hands and feeble knees. If we're not moving forward, we begin to fall behind. And others start to take our place as they move forward in the faith. The prophet Isaiah is saying to Israel, God's restoration is hand. It's no time for weak hands and feeble knees. The Lord wants to say to you today that are fearful, say today that those who have hurting hearts, be strong. Do not fear. The Messiah will come and save you. I'm saying to you today, folks, those of you who are struggling with all sorts of different things, be strong. Do not fear. The Lord Jesus is coming for you. He's coming for you. In our present condition, we need to be strong in the hope of the Lord to overcome these fearful wounds. We need the insurance and confidence that Christ will come and save us. And where do we get that assurance? Where do we get that confidence? To his word. His word clearly tells us that Jesus is going to return for his own and gather them and take them to where he is. That is our hope. That is the hope in which we have. And in that day, there will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. There won't be any more problems. We'll see him face to face, and it'll be a wonderful experience. The people lying around the pool of Bethesda that day should have been looking for their Messiah. 
And what's interesting about it is as we read the scriptures, their Messiah was walking among them. Their Messiah was walking right among them. But they failed to recognize him. They were trying in their own strength to do something about their predicament because their religious leaders had them spiritually blind. They were spiritually blind. Instead of looking for the Messiah, looking for the one who would heal them, they were too busy looking at their problem and thinking how they could fix it. That might sound pretty darn familiar to some of you. In verse 6, Jesus looks at the lame man. He looks at him. He sees him there. Jesus knew his condition for a long time. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there in that condition a long time, he said to him, he asked this very curious thing. And some of you might be wondering, why in the world would Jesus ask that question of somebody who's sick? Listen to the words. Do you want to be made well? Why would Jesus ask that? Surely this man wanted to be healed. That's not necessarily so. There are many who are sick, many who are struggling with infirmities, many who are struggling with the sin of addiction who really do not want to be made well. Maybe some have been so discouraged that they've put away all hope. Look what the man does in verse 7. The man said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am in coming, another steps down before me. Instead of saying anything to Jesus, he begins to make excuses. There's nobody going to help me. I need someone to come and help me. How can I get there? Somebody come and help me. Where's his trust? Where's his faith? He's not placing his faith in the Messiah. He's not placing his faith in God. He's placing his faith in man, and man will always let you down. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water moves. And instead of him giving Jesus an answer, he's making excuses. I want to be healed, but I've tried everything in my power, and I can't do it. Well, yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. You've tried everything in your own power, and you can't do it. You're limiting God. You put a limit on what God can do. Well, if I can't do it, it can't be done. You see, to be made well, there needs to be a desire to be made well. Follow me on this. There needs to be a desire to be made well. We have to put the excuses aside. When we make excuse after excuse after excuse, we come to embrace the excuse. The excuse becomes our bud. It becomes our BFF. We love our excuses. We love to make excuses as to why we can't move forward. And that way, we can wallow in our hopelessness and our inactivity. We rationalize. I'll never be well anyhow. We see our excuses they keep us from going that extra mile to have faith. They keep us from going that extra mile of seeking out Jesus. Our excuses are holding us back from victory. When the victory has already been won. When the victory has already been completed. Now this man's will has paralyzed him. He didn't know any other kind of way of life. He had been that way for 38 years. My goodness. It was his way of life. And guess what? He was comfortable in that position. We become familiar with our position in life. We think that that's what we deserve. This is my lot in life, and I'm gonna, I deserve it. We become familiar. We know it. It won't surprise us. We can become more comfortable in our present misery than it takes to take the steps to be free. Sometimes we don't have the desire to be free from our addictions. Sometimes we don't have a desire to be free from our 
current situation. Why? We're afraid of the outcome. We're afraid of the outcome. If you heal a lame man who is begging on the side of the road, he's no longer lame. How can he beg for food? You've taken away his money source. Now he has to take some responsibility. There are payoffs in our afflictions. Come on. Let's get real. There are payoffs in our afflictions. Number one, you get all kinds of attention from all kinds of people. Oh, poor baby. You get help. And sometimes you get power over people. You get them to do what you want them to do. Because you're hanging on to it. The man says to Jesus, every time I get up, someone beats me to the pool. The man is trying to do things in his own strength. And once again, Jesus is trying to teach a spiritual lesson all through the book so far. The first four chapters, everything Jesus does is spiritual. He's trying to teach a spiritual lesson. It's a matter of the heart. And it's a matter of faith. In what or in whom are you placing your trust? In whom are you placing your faith? It's very interesting that as we get further on into the chapter, in verse 40, Jesus is talking about the people who won't believe in him, the people who won't trust in him. He says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. There needs to be a willingness to go from this life to the new life. There needs to be a willingness to drop everything behind you, the old, and come into the new. There needs to be a willingness on your part. If you draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. There's a willingness there. Jesus commands the guy to do three things. He commands the guy to do three things, and we're going to look at these three things. I think they apply to us today. First thing he says is rise. Get on your feet. Get moving. Stop wallowing in your infirmity. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him. He is able to heal you. Stop believing that your situation can't be changed, but believe that he will take care of you. It's an action. Follow him. Was Jesus asking the impossible of the man? No, nothing's impossible with God. Jesus was asking man to do something that he hadn't done in 38 years. Rise up. And I'm sure as that man took a step of faith and began to rise, his legs were strengthened and he was given the power to stand. In fact, that's what verse 9 says. And immediately the man was made well. Note that rising up is what? It's an action. He did something. He could have just sat there and said, uh, tried that before, it didn't work. Every time I get up, I fall on my face. No, he got up anyhow. He tried it again. And he was given the power to stand. Rise is an action word. So is faith. Faith is an action word. Then Jesus says to the man, take up your bed. Why wouldn't he want him to leave that gnarly blanket or bed or mat or whatever it was there by the pool? Why would he want him to take that up? I thought about this. Why would he want him to take that up? He didn't want him to have something to come back to. He didn't want him to have something to come back to. If I leave the bed there, I can always go back to that mat. I can always go back and sneak back in and get cuddly again. I'm sure my impression is still in that mat, and I can fit right in there and be comfy cozy. Jesus wanted the man to rid himself of the trappings of the old life. You are The book of John covers Jesus' life and ministry here on earth, but the book begins long before Jesus was born in a manger. He existed with God the Father from the start. So many other religions have some figure they look to or commemorate, but none of those mere men accomplished what Jesus did. 
Jesus came as a man and died, but then he came back to life because he's God. No other man can claim that remarkable feat. Only God could do this, and therefore, the only true one to follow is Jesus. What might be holding you back today in believing all that God says he is and does? If you have some questions you'd like answered, we'd be happy to try and answer these questions or pray with you about what's weighing on your heart. Please don't hesitate to call us at 609-884-5821. Again, that number is 609 609- 884-5821. Keep looking to scripture for answers and know that we care about the journey you're on. We're so glad you tuned in to A Sure Hope today. You can hear more messages like this one from Pastor Dave at our website. Just click on the messages tab when you visit assurehoperadio.com. We'd love to meet you too. Find out how you can join us for worship at Calvary Chapel Cape May by visiting assurehoperadio.com. You'll also find us on Facebook and YouTube. Links for both are at assurehoperadio.com. There's more to learn from the book of John next time, so be sure to join us again on another edition of A Sure Hope.